This morning, our text will begin in Romans chapter 8. If you would turn there in your Bibles, Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. As you see from your outlines, which will be very important this morning, we're going to be looking at a lot of different scriptural texts. So trust that uh, as we move through the outline, you'll have all of those details there in front of you and will help not only for you to follow along, but to turn as uh, the Lord leads and follow in our reading. And it will be, I trust, a wonderful time as we look into this wonderful topic this morning. Our text this morning is uh, not really in line with the book of James as we've been studying. There is a, a connection to it, but what we're looking at this morning is the importance of order and of things being in order. Now, for myself, particularly as an engineer, before I start my sermon work, I have to make sure that my desk is completely clean and ready to get started. Uh, usually by the time I'm done, it looks like a bomb went off, but I've got to have papers put away and everything kind of lined up and ready to go. Because order is something that I find just helps me in my production. And I presume that you are the same way in some task or another. You need to have things in order before you dive into it. Well, that comes from our Heavenly Father because He is also a God of order. We see order all about us. We see order in creation. When we think of the stars and the planets, each of them revolve in a specific orbit that is a set order, one with another. Stunning as it is to realize how that all works out. Our planets rotating and planets rotating, the moon around us, us around our sun, our galaxy around other galaxies. And yet the specificity of this order has allowed man to be able to navigate by those stars which are constantly in flow. And therein shows a tremendous element of God's order. The tides are something that we can chart and determine because they are also a function of God's plan of order. Even the plant cycle, those that come up in the spring and bloom and bear forth fruit and leaf through the summer and drop those leaves through a winter time of rest to come again in the spring also show the perfection of God's order. Well, God's order is a function of who he is. We see his order even in his characteristics, or as we often term them, his perfections. When we think of all of the ways in which God acts and all of the different things that we see in him, we understand that they are a function of order. His love and his continual expression of love is evidence for us of the order which exists in him. Never will God be anything but love. His justice in the same fashion is something which we can always count on for he fully exudes that same justice. And there is a perfection and order in those attributes. God's perspectives of order are also revealed in the doctrine of Scripture. God is revealed in full measure here in his word to us. Now, he is not fully revealed, for if God could be fully revealed, he would by definition not be God. Because if we could define and if we could set down all of the parameters that were the confines of God, then we could fully understand him. And yet he is so far above us that that is simply something that is not possible. Yet we do have his full revelation and everything that we need in full measure. The primary doctrine is the doctrine of God. It is the doctrine of the revelation of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And in each of these, we see this beautiful identity of each of these three essences of God and yet the unity that exists in the Trinity. And it is a glorious doctrine. Second to that is the doctrine of man. As God created all things on this earth and man as his highest creation, we then become that doctrine which follows suit after the doctrine of God. Yet, of course, although man was created pure, he fell. And in that fall became the third most important doctrine, which is the doctrine of salvation. 
a, a doctrine that is vital to our understanding, a doctrine by which if others do not share and recognize these components, we even will remove ourselves from some of our associations with them because it is so important to recognize the foundational element of God's salvation in that doctrine. Well, that brings us to our title for this morning. I've titled our message, as you see there in your outline, God's Big Beautiful Plan of Salvation. And that's just what it is. It is a big, beautiful plan of salvation. Now, again, I want to uh, just remind you, your outline in front of you there in bold has three points for our three points this morning. Below that, uh, in regular type, you'll see each of the scriptures that we're going to go to so that you can follow along and move through those. And I trust that those will be an additional blessing and, and help to you this morning. So let's go to our first text in Romans chapter 8 and verses 29 and 30. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, this is an outstanding text, and it is a vital text with regards to our understanding of the doctrine of salvation. But it is also critical to understand the verse prior to Romans 8, 29, which we so often quote and talk about in Romans 8, 28, and the, the beautiful understanding, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to his purposes. And we think at that point in our, our wonderful time in our biblical counseling class, the last two days reminded us that that doesn't mean that everything in our lives is going to be perfectly good. And that everything we hope for is going to turn out to the best. And, and he used examples of wanting such and such car or such and such house. And that's not at all what this is speaking about. And our verses later, verses 29 and 30, which must be associated with this, tell us what that good is that will work out. And that good outworking is the salvific plan of God. And it is wonderful for us to, to stop and ponder for a minute all of the details of these wonderful verses. Now, these verses, which I just read, verses 29 and 30, take us to our first point this morning, which is the order of salvation. The order of salvation. And in our verses, we see a very distinct order which is revealed for us. In fact, there are five points that are indicated in these verses that show the order that God reveals of salvation. You see those, of course, in your outline. And those, four, those five points are that God foreknew us, that he predestined us second, that he called us third, that he justified us fourth, and that he glorified us fifth. When we think of these terms in brief fashion, although we could do a multiple week message on each of these terms, but just by way of quick definition, God's foreknowledge is that he knew all things ahead of time. Now, some mistakenly think that God looked down the corridors of time and saw how man would respond, and therein is his foreknowledge. That is a complete error in the understanding of God's foreknowledge. God exists completely outside of time and therein he knows all of the events inside of time before any of them ever happen. This is what we understand in his omniscience. So when we say he foreknew us, we are talking about a knowledge that God had before time ever existed. Now, the next term that we come to is predestined. This is the term that we understand that God has chosen those who would be his children. That he has predetermined in the same before time element those whom 
he would call to himself. This is predestination. And then third, he called those people. Now we have moved into the realm of time. And it's important for us to understand the two components of logic and time that we're talking about when we discuss salvation and this order of salvation. The calling is that which God places upon our lives by which we will come to him in understanding of that call that he has placed on us, that quickening of the Holy Spirit and respond with regards to that. We'll see further elaboration of particularly this point as we move along. Fourth, he tells us that we're justified. That means that we are seen as righteous and as guilt-free. That because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And then fifth, he tells us that we will be glorified. That is, that we will receive the glory of God when we receive eternally glorified bodies. So these five points are what Paul felt like were the vital elements as God revealed to him to bring forth to us this order of salvation. Notice a few things about them. They are unique in the perspective that they reveal. Now, we're going to talk about several other elements of the order of salvation, which we normally think of. But these are the ones that reflect God's perspective. These are God's actions with man, if you will. God's knowledge, his foreknowledge, his predestination, then calling, then his justification of us, and ultimately his glorification. So there is a chronological and a logical sequence that we see with each of these terms. And it indicates an order. Now, although these seem very straightforward, and we can number them, and they all seem fairly logical to us, theologians have been wrestling with these verses since the beginning of the church. And we find from the very earliest men who started to quantify this in, in Origen and in others, uh, Augustine, and all the way through the Reformers and into modern day, a discussion of the order of this salvation. And we do not find coherence in any of that discussion. The reason is because there are other components of this salvation, aren't there? I mean, when we think about these, there's other things that the scripture talks about with regards to them. And we've indicated there in point B in your outline, some of those other terms. Other terms such as election, closely associated with predestination. We've talked about regeneration and faith, repentance and conversion. All of those very close to being called. In addition to those, we also see then adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and even death. All of these terms also are a function of an order of salvation. They are all biblical components that God has, has designed and has shown to us in his word. That election is that choosing of God. It is the very action that defines what God did in bringing us to himself. That regeneration is the way in which we are made new, where we are given a new heart and where his spirit is placed in us. Faith, that act that brings us new life. Repentance, the gift from God that helps us recognize our sin and our need to turn and to change. The aspects of conversion by which we are changed and which no longer is the old man dwelling in us, but now we have become a new creation. Adoption by which God takes us and makes us fellow heirs with his son, Jesus Christ. Sanctification, the work of God by which we are made holy and by which we also continue to pursue holiness and perseverance that process of sanctification by which we continue until death so many of these different terms that come to bear as we consider all that has God has done in these well let me share with you a couple of the various proposals of how these elements from point B 
work into the five that I gave you in point A. And you won't find that these will be easy to try and take notes. So you might just listen or use the first letter as an abbreviation. I will email you these individual lists after we conclude today. But just so you have an idea of the variation that occurs. James Montgomery Boyce is the closest to our text in Romans 8, 29. Boyce's list reads as follows. Foreknowledge, predestination, effectual calling, so he's changed calling a bit there, regeneration, repentance, justification, sanctification, and glorification. So Dr. Boyce has taken our list from Romans 8 and 29 and 30, and he has changed calling to effectual calling because he says that all men have a calling placed upon them per Romans chapter 1. And he would be correct with that. All men know God. There is no one who does not understand the truth of God nor the punishment for their disobedience to him. But the effectual calling that Boyce talks about is the one by which we hear God drawing us to himself. So he quantifies that just a bit. And then he adds as well into our list regeneration and repentance. That process by which we come to new life and we recognize our sins and are given the strength to turn from it. Justification in line with what we saw in Romans 8 and then sanctification, the process, and glorification, the end. The shortest that I found was by a gentleman by the name of H.D. Smith back at the beginning of the 19th century. And he used the four terms election, justification, regeneration, and sanctification. So he's seriously shortened the list that we had from Romans 8. And yet as he did so, he added a couple of items on his own. The longest list is by Robert Culver, one of the newer systematic theologies. He has 11 items in his list where he lists election and calling, repentance, and then faith, then conversion, then justification, then regeneration, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. We see Dr. MacArthur in his new systematic theology notes foreknowledge, effectual calling, then conversion, then justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. And each of these has some significant changes, even moving the order of the terms. And we ask ourselves, why? Why is there so much confusion on that? Well, in case we wondered if that was simply a man, man's perspective, we look also in our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, Paul gives us a different order. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, Paul says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. So now Paul takes it to washed, then sanctified, and then justified. And we see that in all of our other lists, this is the first time we see justification, the act of being made just, and sanctification, the act of being made holy, switched. The reason is because there's two components here of sanctification that are being discussed. So we're seeing that there's a lot of depth behind all of these terms. There is a lot of variation because there's a tremendous amount of theology and discussion of God's working. So when we consider why this variation, there are two main reasons. The first is perspective. And it is whether we are viewing salvation and this order of salvation from God's perspective or from our perspective. So that creates a difference in the way that the list is brought forth. The second reason that we see distinctions is because there is a question as to whether this list should be logical or chronological. Should it be simply the way we expect things to work out as we understand them in our minds and in our experience of salvation? 
or should it be the chronology that we see moved forth in the life of the one who is saved? And they are very different. Augustus Hopkins Strong, who has written his famous concordance, also has a theology book. And he says that the order of salvation is logical and not chronological. That we must see the mind of God in order to understand the way that these processes are ongoing. And it is not necessarily the way that they happen in the life of the one who is saved. Now, as an engineer, I'm all about logic and I think that's a wonderful perspective. But all of a sudden, now to say that things are not chronological is is very difficult for me. Because everything I experience is inside of time. This is a big problem, I think, for all of us in general. When we start to understand who God is and his knowledge of all things outside of time, how can we comprehend that when we are limited within space and time? But God's time is from eternity past to eternity future. Therein, the logical conception is a good way to understand these different orders. Well, regardless how we list these, it's clear that there is an order. Men may not be able to agree on exactly what that order is, but God knows it. And we know that all of the components that we've talked about are a part of that order. So in order for us to better understand all of this, let's consider a few of the terms and their meanings within this idea of salvation. And we're going to turn here to our second point, the elements of salvation. The elements of salvation. Each of these terms that we've talked about under A, B, and C in your outline there could have several weeks of messages done on them. Many of them have books of hundreds of pages that are written regarding those components. But we just want to discuss a few particularly in this specific area of those that are called and those that are justified per Romans 8, 29. Those two central pieces of our order of salvation. Now, for our first instance, I would like to consider faith. And as we think about faith, we, of course, are drawn back to our very familiar text in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We all know that faith is a grace gift of God, and that's exactly what Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So our gift of faith that God has given to us is completely outside of ourselves. It is a grace gift. It is a gift of unmerited favor. We have nothing to do with it. There are no works that can be associated with it. For if that were the case, then men would boast as if he did have some role. And that is not at all what faith is. And yet we know that there are other terms that are closely associated with faith, don't we? We know that there is the idea of believing and also the idea of repentance. In fact, the scripture talks about areas in which those terms are used in isolated form to talk about salvation. All by themselves, we see these words of repentance and belief describing what salvation is. And one of the most important ones is at the beginning of the church age after Peter's great sermon. And in Acts chapter 2, in verse 37, after Peter has preached this incredible sermon, when they heard this, Acts 2 and 37, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Clearly, salvation is fully discussed in this passage, and yet the only term that is described regarding it is repentance. There's no discussion of calling, regeneration, faith, or even belief. And what we see is that when the scriptural authors speak 
of repentance as that which results in belief. It is clearly saving repentance. And it can be used by itself. We see the the contrast of that in Acts chapter 16 and verse 31. Here, the familiar story of the Philippian jailer. And as the earthquake has happened and the jailer is ready to take his life and Paul and Silas cry out from the dungeon not to do so, that they are still there. And as the jailer takes them out and is astounded that they have not left, it says in Acts 16, 31, as they said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved in your household. So it is just that act of belief by which one is saved. So belief that results in faith is saving belief. So we understand that there's complexities and nuances in each of these terms. So there are many components of faith, and we'll see more of these as we move along. Now, when we consider the next term, which is salvation, and uh, we have that there in 2B of your outline, even the term salvation has some broad understandings. We've just looked at the order of salvation and saw that there are a lot of components that different people add or don't use in order to bring about an understanding of all that's involved in salvation. Now, when I think of salvation, again, I have a difficult time getting outside of time, outside of chronology, because I think of my life. I think of the time that I lived before coming to Christ the time that I've lived since Christ, and the time that I look forward to eternally in being with Christ. So that idea of chronology and salvation encompassing time is something that naturally comes to me. We often speak of the fact that someone who is not saved has opportunity to come to a saving knowledge of Christ until the time that they breathe their last breath. And no longer then is the opportunity available for they will stand before their judge. Again, a chronological distinction within our lives and the time that we live on the earth. So what does lie behind this idea of salvation? Well, it's interesting. The verse that we just read this past Wednesday in 1 Peter chapter 5 gives us a very unique understanding of what salvation might look like. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. In 1 Peter 1, 5, it says, those who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter is talking about a salvation that is yet coming, that's yet to be shown. Is this different? Is this a different order of salvation? No, it is not at all. It's telling us that in the end, in the last time, not at the end of our lives, the last time is speaking about the Lord's return, that in the Lord's return, there is a completion of our salvation. Well, this is glorification. This is when we will be made whole, when we will be free from the difficulties of this earth and of our sin. And In that aspect, there is a salvation ready to be revealed later. So salvation by itself is a very broad term. That which is yet coming. And and we have to, beloved, we have to broaden our understanding of these terms. We have to allow our minds to move out to embrace all of the vastness that God's word speaks to us about regarding salvation. We cannot limit God. We have to continue to grow in how we understand theology. It is a blessing to come to a recognition of these details. But we must continue to grow. I remember when I got married. And I thought, you know, I think I know most of what's required to be married. And, of course, uh, that didn't take long to realize that I didn't. I, I recognized very well what it took to be selfish in marriage. But I didn't understand what it meant to truly be married. And the Lord blessed me several years later to come to know him and to realize what his word said about marriage. And I thought, aha, now I know what marriage is all about. But as I've continued to go on, I realize that every day I need to grow more in my understanding 
of that beautiful concept. And I hope that it's the same for all of you that are married. Because in that, our marriages continue to blossom and grow and to better honor the Lord. So there is a continual revelation of knowledge. And this broadened understanding is also evidenced in sanctification. We know that there are two parts of sanctification, that there is positional sanctification and that then there is progressive sanctification that continues on beyond that time. And in these two components, our positional sanctification is that as soon as we are saved, that God sees us as holy and righteous. We are given Christ's righteousness and he takes our sin from us. And so we are seen positionally holy at that point. That's why in 1 Corinthians 6 and 11, sanctification precedes justification. But we also know there is the ongoing component where every day of our lives, we must grow in obedience. We must grow in holiness. And so this is the ongoing point. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 18, we see a representation of the positional sanctification. Acts 26 and verse 18, as the Lord was speaking to Paul, and Paul is recounting that to Agrippa, he says in Acts 26, 18, the, the Lord is saying to Paul that he's speaking to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So he is referencing a past tense time where through faith and through Christ, men are fully sanctified. And this is the glory of sanctification, that at the moment that we are saved, God sees us as holy and righteous. And yet we know that we are not. We know that there is yet the ongoing battle with sin in our flesh. That ongoing process of sanctification is revealed to us in texts like Romans chapter 6 and verse 19. And in Romans 6, 19, Paul says, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So now... Our presenting our members, presenting our bodies as slaves of righteousness, no longer as slaves of sin, no longer as slaves of impurity, this equals sanctification. This is our progressive walk of every day continuing to live more holy before a holy God. Some theologians refer to this as the already not yet principle. We are already seen in God's eyes as sanctified and as holy. And yet we have not gotten there from a human point of view. It is an ongoing process every day of our lives. But there is another element of this order of salvation that this already not yet process applies to, and that is justification. Justification. And this is where some people run into problems but it ought not be so. Let's go to Romans chapter three and verse 28. If you'd turn there with me, Romans chapter three and verse 28. Romans is often considered the consummate book on justification, and it is an excellent theological study. And here in Romans 3.28, Paul brings to us a very succinct and specific statement on what justification is. He says in Romans 3 and 28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He is telling us there that justification comes without any works of the law. That means that there is nothing leading up, there is no effort by man leading up to justification which can add to God's gift 
of making this one justified. Paul makes a similar and even a little more profound statement in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. Paul says in Galatians 2 and verse 16, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Again, Paul emphasizes that there is no way to work. There is no way to add to God's gift of justification. Just as also is the case in faith. That it is God's work. And these both fit very nicely within our theological framework. But then we run into verses like I read two weeks ago. From Romans chapter 2 in verse 13. If you would turn back to that text. Romans chapter 2 and verse 13. This was a cross-reference from our last message in James 1 and 27. And in Romans 2 and verse 13, it says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. The doers of the law will be justified. And we go, wait a minute now, what is that saying to us? Is, is, this a, is this a challenge? Is there something different going on? He's telling us here clearly that it's not just those who hear this law who are going to be just, but it is the ones who are doing, the ones who are working, the ones who are living in obedience, that they will be justified. A future tense verb will be justified. And in fact, it's not just Romans 2.13, but in our series from James, which we'll get to in a few weeks, James chapter 2 and verse 24 says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And we go, wait a minute, is, is there a contradiction here? Do we, have a, do we have a problem with what God is speaking in these two verses? Is there some way a conflict within Scripture? Of course not. There is no conflict within God's word. It is in perfect harmony. So what is he saying? He is telling us that it is an outworking of our faith which evidences works. It is not works leading up to justification. It is not works leading up to faith. But after we are saved, there is an outworking of our faith which is shown in our works. And the one who does not have any evidence of that outworking of works is one who's, as James will also say, whose faith is dead and therein not real. All these terms are revealing the same thing. And we expect this because the Bible is consistent and without error. And this consistent expression is our third point which is the outworking of salvation. The outworking of salvation. The outworking of these terms shows us the complete view of salvation. And we have to make certain that we don't squeeze our personal theology so tight that it has no room for Scripture's complexities. We can't fit God into a box nor can we fit God's theology into a box. We have to understand all that he is telling us. The Bible is a lifelong study, beloved, as, as Don Roy mentioned to us in our biblical counseling series. And he reminds us that this study is to bring change as the Holy Spirit continues to illumine our hearts and our minds. The word is to work in us and through us and even out of us. And this study, this lifelong pursuit of God's word requires careful examination. 
And it requires us looking into the, the inductive verbs that, that give us instruction and they illustrate for us the beauties of these doctrines and the excellencies of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it also requires careful study of the imperatives, the commands that guide us towards holy living, that guide us towards obedience in God. It's vital for us to understand this. And of course, this is what we see in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3, the beloved apostle writes, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. John is telling us here that if we are those who love God, if we are those who are called by God, who are saved by God, then we will obey his commands. We will obey the imperatives of his word. We will grow in our obedience. We will exemplify a faithful walk therein revealing the justification that has been given us and is yet to be revealed in us. That reveals the sanctification that has been given us and is yet to be fully revealed. That reveals the salvation that has been given us and is yet to come to full measure in our glorification. In preaching, it's much easier to preach the indicatives. It's a delight to go through and to talk about doctrine and to marvel on the complexities and the nuances of all that's shown to us about our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. We, as those who hold to the Reformed tradition, look into Scripture and it's wonderful to preach about total depravity. And we all understand that. We understand the depravity of man. We look at the world around us. We know from whence we've come. And that is a wonderful thing to talk about. And I do so, and I, I don't step in anyone's feet, and I love that. And we can talk about unconditional election, God's calling of us to himself, and we marvel at that amazing doctrine and all that God has done. And we talk about limited or better particular atonement and the way that Christ has died and given his life to take our sins. And we marvel at that. And his irresistible grace and what a joy it is to know that God has given me something that never could I earn. And these indicatives are a delight to be able to preach about. Not the issues then of the imperatives, which become a much more difficult thing. Because when we get to the P of tulip and the perseverance of the saints, then we get to this idea of obedience and of justification worked out and sanctification worked out and salvation worked out. And they're challenging things to bring forward. Not the material, it's very clear in God's word, but rather the receiving it Rather, it is the knowing that as it steps on my own toes, that it also may step on yours. But it's only difficult if we don't understand the motivation. That is, if we don't understand the outworking of salvation. It is not a complexity foisted and forced upon us so that we would obey. This is not a, a dog that is beat into submission so that he will sit and heal and lay down at a command. It is completely the opposite. It is, it is a heart attitude that we must have. The outworking of salvation, really the order of salvation, well describes this beauty of what we should have and what we should think and know and that we ought to have this tremendous joy in our lives over this blessing of understanding that we can obey because our eyes have been opened. That if we went back to that wonderful text from Ephesians 2.8 and backed up to verse 1, we would know that we, are, or we were dead in our trespasses and sins. 
and that we were unable to respond to this word of God. But now he has illuminated our minds. Now he has, as surely as he did Paul, he has taken the scales from our eyes and he has brought us to life. And it is a delight to know that light and that life and the glory of this word and to obey it. And all of this comes forward in the idea of this order of salvation. Let me share with you a a quote from G.C. Burkauer. He writes in his studies in Dogmatics on Faith and Justification, the theological scheme of the order of salvation thus has no significance by itself. The order is relevant only in that it aids us to appreciate the fullness of divine salvation. It does not include the entire course on which man walks in the way of salvation. The ways along which God leads man to his salvation are so richly varied that it is impossible to circumscribe them all in fixed written means. When theology defines the order of salvation, it is to display the treasures of salvation and the blessing which God in Christ has earned for his people and which he in the Holy Spirit apportions to them. It is further to suggest the benefits that the one great work of redemption brings. Our reflection on the order of salvation concerns finally what Calvin expressed simply as the manner in which the grace of Christ is obtained. The fruits that come to us therefrom and the works that follow. What a beautiful picture of an understanding of this order of salvation. You see, this zeal of Burkhauer is my goal in preaching. It is my delight to be able to bring to you the glories of this word. It's my hope that and my prayer to encourage you in the growth of your faith. And yet growth can be hard. Sometimes it's a struggle to get through difficult times in our lives and to realize difficult things about ourselves. Thus, as we come to the imperatives, I strongly encourage not to negate the indicatives, but rather I encourage you to greater obedience. I encourage you striving to hope that you will have greater joy so that you will grow in obedience, so that the joy of Christ will be so full in your life that you will will be so delighted in your Savior that his love and the amazement of his grace and all he's revealed to us will become more rich and more sweet, that you will therein have a greater love for Christ, that as we come and as we sing his precious praises, that we will look to the cross and we will glory in what Jesus has done for us. And we will marvel that one day we will be eternally with him through his work. And it is such an incredible blessing to realize this and to know that through our faithfulness, he will continue to shower upon us our blessing, his blessings for that which we continue to obey him, that which one modern author calls future grace, that aspect by which God continues to shower us with blessings. And does he not shower us with rich blessings? Such a joy for us to understand all of this. And I know that communicating this, it can be difficult. I want you to know that as I seek to do so, that I do so with the utmost desire to show you love. I hope that in the two and a half years I've been with you, you have seen my love which Christ has put in me. And yet I want to excel still more. I know there is so much room for growth in me. I want you to understand that 
as I come to you to show you this love, it's because I'm all in. I am all here. I am all for you. I love this word and I love this church. And it's my desire that we would grow together and that the, the glories and the holiness and the excellencies of Jesus Christ would emanate out from us in such a powerful way that everyone you come in contact with would just go, wow, that one is passionate for Christ. I've given my whole life to be here to be in Mobile, and I, I am so thankful for that. I delight in every element of it. I come because not only do I love you, but I know it is my command to feed you. And I know sometimes that it's different food than you're used to. Maybe not exactly the taste that you might sometimes have. Sometimes different words and I apologize if those words seem, those which are, are difficult to grasp. There's no intent in that. There's no desire to exalt in that. I realize there's a little different sound in the tone than perhaps you have heard. But it's never to confuse. It's never to exalt. My desire is always to put the cookies on the lower shelf so that it is accessible for everyone. Perhaps to lower that shelf as we move along. But as we do all these things and as I seek to communicate to you, I need something from you. I recognize that I am not a perfect communicator. But when there is something you don't understand, I need you to come to me and to talk to me about it because I can't know those things if you don't tell me. It's vital that we talk about this because you may speak to someone else about it and they may not know either. And then in there in the error and the concern is not negated, rather it's built up. And that is not at all what God for ha would have for us. Because this is God's big, beautiful plan for salvation. And he has drawn us all into it and he has shown us glorious things. And I want to show them as best I can to you. And I want you to grasp them. And I want you to grow in them. And I want us to be so much more faithful than ever we thought we could be. Because this is the calling and this is the plan of salvation. And it is amazing in what we have seen so far. And there is so much that is so much more amazing that yet awaits us. And I pray that as we walk through this together, as we continue on and we learn and we study doctrine and we study commands, that God will open all of our eyes to a deeper understanding of who he is and that we will therein grow yet still more as Paul told the Thessalonians. And that as we excel, Christ will be more fully glorified. For this is the end for which he has placed us here the doctrine of God, that we might glorify and bring God all of the honor that he deserves. I pray that he would strengthen us to do this.